I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Leadership in engineering is about driving product development, helping engineers, mentoring, managing conflict, among many other things. Kate Redding, engineering manager at Asana, explained her path from software engineer to engineering manager. We talked about her experience in this role and its characteristics. Kate also explained the transition to a remote team because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also talked about her work in the platform integrations team at Asana. Kate Redding, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you. Early in your career, you worked as a software engineer for 13 years in the federal government. For context, that was from 2002 until 2015. And after that, you worked on different companies, most recently at Asana. So you're building software for the enterprise and for consumers. Throughout your career and from your experience, did you notice any differences in the software development process between working in government and now at a company? Yes and no. I think some of the big differences have been the pace and also what we focus on. The development life cycle when I worked at the government was generally quite long and we would make sure things were absolutely perfect before we released them. And one of the big adjustments with me coming to enterprise was that It's much more iterative in terms of releases. You release every day or multiple times a day and you expect there will be bugs and you'll work through them and you'll prioritize them and you'll quickly fix them. And that was something that was really different for me. I think a lot of the general processes are similar. My was part of bringing in agile development with my teams. I did a lot of your standard sprint planning and standups and you know all of those kinds of processes are really similar. And now you're currently at Asana, which is a software company that focuses a lot on productivity software. You're specifically an engineering manager in the platform integrations team. Before we talk in a bit of detail about what this team does, can you give an overview of Asana? Sure. So Asana generally is a work management platform. So the idea is helping teams organize their work and communicate about it. We talk a lot about the focus on who is doing what by when. And my team specifically, I support several teams in the platform area. And so our teams are focused especially on how work gets into and out of Asana. So that's things like our API team, which is our public-facing API that allows other companies to build integrations with Asana. I support our integrations team, which builds specific integrations between Asana and other tools. So you can imagine we have an integration with Slack, we have an integration with Gmail, And the idea behind that series of tools is building on top of the API to bring data in or to push data out. And sort of the focus of this whole area is looking at the full scope of work that individual users take on and where are the tools and places where that work lives, but also the full scope of tools that teams of users use. So what kinds of tools do creative teams use to get their work done? And how should we best incorporate that into Asana so that Asana really becomes a central hub that lets that team communicate? 
So you mentioned this integrations. One of the main reasons why they're in place is to allow users to bring data in or push data out. And you listed various examples. Some of the ones I saw are integrations with Salesforce, Adobe, Gmail. What are some challenges of working with integrating other existing tools and APIs? Yeah, there's a couple of different flavors to it. One of the first challenges is just making sure we really understand the use case for an integration. Because if you think about it, we're creating that first connection between our tool and another tool. And we have some guesses and users have some guesses about what they might do with that. But we don't want to just connect things. We want to make sure we're solving a user pain. So that's the first challenge. I think the real deep technical challenge is that when we're building integrations, we have to think about where the gold source of data lives and where on what platform we should build the integration. So for example, with the Slack integration, what we're doing is basically allowing users in Slack to see some information from Asana, but also allowing them to interact with it. In order to do that, we're actually building on top of Slack's platform and then using the Asana API to push data back and forth. So that means we have to get deep into understanding Slack's platform. Same thing for Salesforce. The Salesforce integration is built in the Salesforce platform. So that meant we had to go in and learn a whole new technical area in order to build that. And, you know, we know as engineers over time, the longer you work on a platform or with a language, the more you're able to leverage it effectively. But a lot of times with integrations, we're going into a totally new platform for the first time. And so we have to quickly figure out what's possible. What are the technical limitations of this platform? What are the right ways? What are the best practices for building on that platform? So it's a lot of upfront learning and a lot of variability in solution building. You mentioned one of the big challenges is that you need to make sure you're solving an actual user pain. What are some of the ways in which you find out what a user pain is? How do you come up with what feature to build? So there's a couple of different things. We have a user research team. So we have a specifically a user researcher who focuses on platform. And that person has spent a lot of time just building up expertise on this type of problem. Okay. So we definitely do deep dives with customers to try to explore what's the real pain, who are the people involved in collaborating on a particular effort. That's definitely part of it. The other thing is, you know, we also take in feedback that we get ad hoc from customers about what pains they've been seeing or what they've been trying to do that they weren't able to do. And then ultimately the idea is we bring all of that together and then as a full team, and that means you know the engineering leadership, the product leadership, the design leadership, the user research leadership, tries to take all of that stuff together and figure out what the right approach is. So it sounds like it's a very cross-team collaboration effort. You're mentioning there's people in the user research area that work a lot on figuring out uh, the features and getting some insights from users. You're also talking about engineering leadership. Can you talk about the process once you decide, once the team has decided on what feature to build, what happens next, just to get an insight of on how you know the feature makes it from idea to production? 
Sure. So we talk a lot about our product process as being a double diamond of exploring, basically broadening our view of what the problems are and then narrowing in on the most important problems and then broadening our view on what the solutions might be and then narrowing in on the solution that we think is right. Generally, we try to involve engineering is is often less involved at the very beginning of that. And as we get more and more focused on solutions, engineering gets more and more involved, especially because we want to be able to weigh in on that potential solution is very hard or that potential solution is very easy. Or if we change this one aspect of it, it'll change drastically by some multiplicative factor, how hard it is, things like that. But once we get to the point where we've completely decided on, okay, this is the feature solution we're going to build, the next thing is going into designing the engineering approach. And so we do that. We put together an engineering design doc. The design doc is the product, but it's also a process, right? Because in engineering, uh, there's a fair amount of you have to do some research. You have to do some investigation. What parts of our code will this touch? How will we figure out? the right approach to building it. And that's kind of the moment where the engineer who's leading that investigation will look into that third-party platform and really understand their API and its limitations and capabilities. They'll reach out to other engineers in our organization who have maybe solved relevant problems or have expertise in a relevant area. For Salesforce, for example, we also reached out to our internal Salesforce developers, people who build Salesforce tools for sales people at Asana and kind of learned from that person what are some of the challenges about the platform. And so all of that information comes together and is used to put together the engineering approach. And then from there, at that point, once we have that kind of reviewed by multiple engineers across the org, that's when we break it down into work. We put it into tasks in Asana and we start planning out our sprints for the team to work on it. Exactly. You listed several components that are very important. One of them is the design doc, which from my experience, I've also looked at it as the place where you explore different solutions, write down pros and cons, and potentially start a discussion within the team, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to look at it as the engineering design doc. It's not just a product. It's not just, here's what we're going to build. You also include, here are the other things we considered. Here's the ideas we rejected. And that ends up being, first of all, it forces you to go through an organized thought process. But also, that information becomes really helpful later when, say, partway through the project, you discover something new that you hadn't anticipated. You can go back to your design doc and say, how does this change the approach I had in mind? Or much later, a year later, when someone else is coming back and picking up this project again and they see some decision you made and it doesn't make sense to them, they can go back to the design doc and say, why was this approach taken and what were the trade-offs they were making? Exactly. I think it also helps you take a step back from technologies you choose. You might be really attached to a certain technology because you like it a lot, but then this doc will make you think, what exactly am I getting by using this? Maybe this other language is better too, right? Right. Yeah. And that's part of, you mentioned, you know, you want to get input from others, right? Within the team, outside the team. And part of that is to help build diversity of view and opinion, right? Because at some point over time, you become comfortable with certain tools or certain patterns because they're ones that you've wielded often. But it's important to take take that moment to really evaluate, am I using this tool because it's the one I'm most comfortable with, which is also an item in its favor, or is this the right tool to solve this problem? 
Another thing you mentioned that I thought was really important was leveraging work from other people or existing solutions. When I talk to people, I tell them this a lot. Software engineering involves figuring out what tool to use, leveraging existing solutions. You don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. So in this case, you're talking about within the company, the engineers know what each other are working on and they seek out, in this case, expertise from the team that has been working more on Salesforce because you happen to be building a Salesforce integration. So in general, I would say it's, it's pretty common to do this kind of thing, leveraging existing work, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can save yourself time, but it also reduces risk, right? If you have something that has been working before, <laughs> tested code is less risky than new code, right? And so it's kind of, it's lowering risk that you're approaching the solution the right way. And it's lowering risk of introducing new code with issues you haven't considered. When you first started in your career, you were working a lot in software engineering. Eventually, you transitioned to a manager role. Can you talk about what this path was like for you? Sure. I think, you know, I was at the government for a really long time, and there I was never interested in the management path. And I think specifically it's because of what the manager path looked like there. The manager path that I could see around me was not as technically focused. It was much more logistically focused. And when I switched to, I moved out to San Francisco, I started working for sort of more traditional tech companies. I really, that was the first time I saw the engineering management leadership path as a path I was really interested in. I have always loved technical leadership, architecture, mentorship, a lot of these things you've been asking me about, I love. I love thinking about, you know, software craftsmanship, what builds the right thing. So previously, when I thought about engineering management, if that wasn't a part of it, then it wasn't as interesting to me. And when I came out to sort of Silicon Valley and started working in these kinds of tech companies, I got to really see that this role is really that union of supporting people, helping them grow, helping them see their own potential, and also getting to do technical leadership. And so that was, seeing that really helped me believe that this is what I wanted to do. And specifically for transitioning to that kind of role, I've talked to various people and it's very different on a case-by-case -case basis. Some people say, well, somebody believed in me and saw something and I became a manager. Other people have said, oh, I lead groups outside of work. I was managing the intern and that's how I started proving that I had the skills to be a manager. What was your experience in that sense? I would say that I believed in me, which isn't to say that I never experienced doubts as I was deciding this was the thing I want, but... What I ended up doing is at the company I was at, I was a senior engineer. I was a team lead, which is essentially like the technical leadership role where you're organizing a team and the work and you're writing code and helping get it all done. And we were going to be hiring a manager and I wanted that job. And so I raised it to my manager and we ended up creating sort of an internal interview process with myself and a few other candidates. At the same time, I also started pursuing interviewing to be a manager at other companies. And I think it's important to tell this story because 
a lot of, when I started doing that, when I started going around and saying, I'm looking to step into a management role, I'm currently not in a management role. There were a lot of people who told me I could not do that, that told me I wouldn't be interviewed for that, that I couldn't do the role unless I had already done it in my existing company. You can't be a manager unless you've been a manager. And I just didn't believe that that was true. Yeah. I knew that it would be harder, but I didn't believe that it was true. And so when I started interviewing a company, as I said flat out, my goal is I want to be an engineering manager. How might that look at your company? And so I got a lot of responses that were things like, well, you could come in as an IC on the team. You could then like be a team lead. You could then become a manager. And I would sort of talk about, well, how, what's the timeline on that? And, you know, that was one path that I considered. But when I interviewed at Asana, I said that and I said, like, here are the reasons why I believe I can do this job. And it is I have a long career of leadership experience and a manager is just another type of leader. And I said specifically, there's going to be a few things that a manager does that I've never done. I've never handled someone's compensation. I've never fired someone. These are like there's going to be a list where you say where I haven't done it and I don't have the experience. But here are all of the leadership experiences that I do have that I think show that I can do this job. And so when I had my initial conversation at Asana, the person I talked to, her name is Bella. She's a leader in another part of our engineering org. She said, OK, she said, let's interview you the way we interview managers and let's see how it goes. And so I think it's just in this case. I believed in me and then Bella believed in me and then I was given an opportunity to prove myself. And you had also been senior engineer and team lead, which I think also are important things. Right. But maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but a lot of people look at that and they're like, well, how do I know you can do this? And I think the thing that makes me sad often is people will just look at what have you been doing in the last six months or the last year? And I think it's really important, especially for people with non-traditional paths, to look at the full scope of their experience and use that to think about what are they capable of. The other thing I want to highlight is, so you've mentioned you were interested in it at some point. You believed in yourself. You had done some leadership. People believed in you. There are other cases where people think they're interested, then they try it out, and then it's okay to also decide it's not for you, right? Mm -hmm. Take a step back. Yeah, I think one of the things that gets people really nervous is there's this fear that if you go into management that you will immediately lose all of your engineering skills and you can't go back. And I have heard, you know, one of the perspectives I really like on that kind of idea is to think about management and IC growth as two parallel ladders and that you can step across and then you can step back. And it doesn't mean you won't have to refresh your skills, but that's, as engineers, we do that all the time, right? Like throughout the course of my career at the government, you know, I learned so many different programming languages. And every time that meant I had to ramp up on something new, but you've done that as an engineer. So you can step into management, do that for a little while, gain a bunch of really great skills, and then decide, you know what, I would rather go switch to that other ladder and focus on those technical skills and you'll be able to ramp up on those again. You've done it before. With the COVID-19 pandemic from earlier this year, we saw a lot of tech companies pivoted to a mostly remote workforce. As an engineering manager, how did this impact you and the team? It was a really big shift on a bunch of different levels. I think, you know, there's the, can we still get our work done aspect of it? And then there's, you know, 
switching to remote work was a big, big event that's happening in our world and humans are experiencing it really differently. So I feel like the first thing that happened that I had to focus on was just making sure that the humans on my team all felt like they were supported and had what they needed. And then that the team was able to communicate effectively with each other and that we were able to adjust some of our practices to work better remotely. And so we spent a fair amount of time right there at the beginning, just really intentionally talking about how do we want to work together now that we're all remote? What do we want to do the same? What do we want to do differently? And I would say that was a big part of my focus for the first several weeks. What's an example of one thing that you and the team changed? So almost everything has been iterated on. One of the things my team used to do an afternoon hangout on Tuesdays, and it was just we turned our chairs around at our desks and talked or whatever. And that was partly because my team always had one member who was remote. And on Tuesdays, he was in the office, so we made sure to all come together. And so we decided we were going to still do that remote. But then we found it was just sort of harder to just hang out with no topic in a Zoom meeting. So we ended up introducing another like explicit team fun time where we have a rotating responsibility. It's captured in a repeating Asana task where someone's responsible for like picking an explicit event. And we ended up moving the timing of that meeting because another thing that happened with going remote is that people have sort of their home lives come into play a lot more than maybe did before when we all worked, you know, approximately nine to five or 10 to six or whatever. And so we made some adjustments to make sure that everyone in the team could participate. So for example, I'm a parent. I really have to plan out time when I'm going to be a primary caregiver, when I'm going to be focused on my team. And so not only do I need to plan things ahead, but I also needed to shift the time zones because I went to get help from family. So we ended up creating a, an explicit team fun time and we moved it up in the day so that I could participate along with several other team members who ended up going to be with family. Is there also a change in expectations in terms of productivity? Because one thing I've heard and I've seen from people is they're saying we're working remote, but it's very different the reason why we're doing it. Because, for example, you're talking about Previously, having had a teammate working remotely for the reasons, now we're all doing it because of this pandemic. And like you said, it's affecting people in different ways. Yeah. Do you think that can impact the productivity? Is it okay? Kind of how are you looking at the success of the team during this difficult time? You know, generally, I think a healthy team has to survive a marathon, not a sprint. And so... If we are finding that our whole world has shifted, it isn't surprising if we have to shift our goals in order for us to maintain a healthy, sustainable team culture. So yes, we definitely have shifted our goals. I think it took us a little bit of time to figure out how we should shift them and by how much. You know, there's this thing, it's like, do we rely on individuals to come forward and saying, I individually am having a hard time? Or do we just kind of look across multiple humans and say, you know, I think we're all kind of having a hard time. We should just create more space in order to relieve some of that pressure. And the reality is we did a little bit of both is like certain people spoke up and were like, I'm a parent. My whole life has changed. Like this is not working for me. Or I'm worried about something else going on in my life. It's just making it hard for me to focus. So we're trying to cultivate this like 
mindfulness and this aspect of it's okay to to be your full self and once one person does that then the other people on the team are more comfortable to do that and then that makes it much easier to see you know what we're all having a hard time we just need to give ourselves more space and ultimately I think doing that enables us to deliver on our goals more effectively maybe with a slightly longer timeline than we'd expected exactly I can definitely relate to that in my team for example one big conversation was around the working hours because some people were finding themselves working late night. Other people were trying to keep their original schedule. But once we said somebody's working late night doesn't mean you have to do it. It's when they were able to do it during the day. So having those expectations and sharing what people are going through, I think, helped the culture of the team. Yeah, I think it helps to be really clear about it, you know, and you have to have built up good team culture for someone to even, you know, ideally the person who's doing stuff late night, maybe they recognize the impact of what they're doing and they bring it up and say, hey, this is happening and here's why. And I haven't changed my expectations about when you're going to respond. And maybe you have to create that psychological safety for someone else on the team to say, hey, I've noticed you're doing stuff late. It's stressing me out because I feel like I have to respond or I should be working more, you know, and bringing that out in the open helps you resolve it. We've been talking a lot about the impact in the culture of the team, the engineering, how they're working now. How have you seen other areas being impacted, for example, like hiring or perhaps onboarding new people? Our recruiting team worked really hard to quickly shift all of our hiring to be remote. That was a huge effort from that team, and it required a lot of, you know, plus all of the engineers who do interviews had to quickly adapt there as well. I think that has gone relatively well. I've been really happy with how Asana focuses on candidate experience as well as interviewer experience. And so we've made some changes. We've iterated. We've made changes again. I think onboarding has been almost more of a challenge because onboarding lasts for a long time, right? There's that first week. Asana, we are so good at our first week. We have all of our like Asana-wide onboarding things. We have our engineering boot camp. We have mentors. We have buddies. Like we've set up this whole system. But onboarding is many, many, many layers. And a lot of it comes down to does that person eventually feel comfortable and connected and feel like they understand what's expected of them. And there's a lot that goes into making that happen effectively. And I am noticing that it's harder remote. I think we're doing a really good, really thoughtful job, but I definitely feel like I have not yet done it perfectly. But I guess you're still iterating, like you mentioned earlier, within your team, there's been a lot of iteration. And I don't know, being in person does help a lot at the beginning, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is what I've started to hear feedback from people on my team was, you know, I feel really connected to the team. I understand our work. I know how to get help. But I've missed out on meeting people in the elevator or meeting people at lunch. I haven't like made casual friends. And so that's something we're like, oh, great. We did a great job onboarding you to the team. We like there's more for us to do to help you feel connected to the organization. And I think that's definitely something that comes up for women and especially, especially if you're the only woman on your team. There's this thing where you just kind of want to also build out your network of other people that are like you so that you can sometimes say, hey, this thing is happening to me. Has it happened to you? How did you resolve it? And we want to, you know, intentionally create that community. Exactly. And as a minority, I definitely agree with that. There's a sense of connection 
between talking to other women or in my case, Hispanics, those groups, I think they're valuable within the organization. There are some things that they can provide comfort, not necessarily to everyone, but for certain parts, in my case, it, it does give me some comfort to speak with them. Yeah, sometimes it's just like another safe space to share your feelings. I mean, certainly we say your manager should be supportive of you and any issues on your team, you should be able to tell them and they should help you and all those things. And also sometimes it's just nice to talk to a peer and vent or say like, I'm having this big scary feeling and just get to work through it. And so we have a group that that's like that. We have, you know, lots of different groups. We have several different ERGs focused on, we have Team Rainbow that's focused on LGBTQ and we have Gradient that's focused on people of color. We have Asana Women and then more specifically in an, for people in technical roles, so not just engineering. We have a group for women and trans, transgender, gender non-binary people who are in technical roles. It's called Gigabyte. And for that group, we're trying to see how do we transition to remote because we had a lot of things that were in person that were working reasonably well. But now it's like another level of effort and organization to make sure people really get connected when we're remote. Exactly. Well, Kate, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed this. Oh,